Good afternoon, and thank you for your patience while our capacity crowd is settled and, and gets lunch. I'm Ann Browdy, the director of the Women's Studies in Religion program, and I'm very happy to welcome you to um, this last event of our lecture series for this semester. And I also want to thank our colleagues at the Center for the Study of World Religions for hosting us today. We're very, very pleased to be here in this space. Um, uh, before we begin, I want to announce our two spring lectures um, from two other research associates in our, the program. On February 20th, a Wednesday, in the Braun Room at 1 o'clock, we will hear from Professor Wylan Wilson, who's with us today, uh, who will speak about her book project, Sick, Sick and Shut In, The Black Church and Black Women's Persistent Health Crisis. Um, and then finally, our last lecture for the year will be on April 3rd uh, when Damaris Parsito, where are you, Damaris? She's, uh, oh, there she is, there's Damaris, uh, who lives here in the center um, for the year. And she will be speaking on April 3rd, also at 1 o'clock, about her book project, The Kingdom of Holy Women, Pentecostalism, Sex, and Women's Bodies in an African Church. Um, she's with, visiting with us from Kenya. Um, today, I'm very happy to have the chance to introduce Professor Zara Mobile. Um, it's such a pleasure to have Zara with us this year in the Carriage House. She is Assistant Professor at the Institute for Humanities and Cultural Studies in Iran and holds a visiting appointment at the University of Tehran where she teaches in the Department of Philosophy. Uh, she specializes in philosophy and Islamic thought and has published several articles in Zanan Emruz, Women of Today, the leading magazine for women's voices in Iran. Her book, Faith as Reason, An Epistemological Approach to Feminist Theology, was the first Persian language book about feminist philosophy. Uh, Dr. Mobile spent eight years at Encyclopedia Islamica, where she wrote many entries about Quranic concepts, including a recently published one, Women in the Quran, which gave birth to the book project that she's going to be speaking with us about today. Um, I can't tell you how illuminating it is for all of the research associates and everyone at the school to have Zara with us this year. We learn every day about the riches of the, the vibrant intellectual culture that she comes from in Tehran, as well as um, she surprises us constantly with her knowledge of American feminist thought in religious studies and theology. Um, she's leading us into material that we think we should be know better than she does, but um, she's so focused on the books that she, she leads the way. So I'm happy to introduce Zara Mobila. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Browdy, for inviting me here and for your support. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I welcome you. Um, the research that I want to share with you today is titled Wild Women Unveiling God, Understanding the Quran Through Its Women Characters. And it is proposed to be a revision uh, of the depiction of women in the Quran and Islamic literature. 
The idea of rethinking women's picture in the Quran was formed in my mind first when I was writing the entry of women in the Quran for the Encyclopedia of the World of Islam. It was a hard task for me because you know that there are many implausible presuppositions and uh, negative assumptions about uh, the concept and the position of women in Islam, one source of which has been the Quran's text. In much of Islamic tra literature, in Quran's interpretation, tradition, uh, in Islamic law, philosophy, and theology, you know that uh, women has been supposed to be a secondary and incidental being, and she's described as passive, dependent, emotional, lacking rationality and faith, that because of all these problems, she she merits less social and economic rights than a man does. So to expiate her offenses, she has to obey, obey men of faith and reason, and she should be entirely at the service of her father or her husband. Moreover, the God of Islam historically has been represented as male. Men were supposed to be divine, and women far from divinity. However, as a Muslim woman, who has repeatedly read the Quran, I couldn't accept that God is a divine male who imposed an androcentric religion and system of values to uh, us. So I tried to listen to the sacred text of Islam to hear its very voice, not the peals that men of voice and power had clamored around the text. Reading the text itself, regardless of the massive literature formed around it, I could watch a completely different narrative. Looking at the Quranic narrative itself, in spite of all the historical and ideological context, one can observe a live magnificent performance in which the narrator gets different noble heroines out of the curtain of patriarchal societies. These heroines are independent agents acting and thinking wisely in continuous conversations with the divine and partaking discourse with people to improve a human situation. Their most important characteristics are their strong faith and confidence in God and taking care about the others. Watching this live performance from the Quran is not in fact so difficult. One is simply to listen to the text itself and let the text speak with her own voice, not imposing one's personal conceptions and ideological interpretations to the text. One can hear the text as a combination of voices and silences in order to obtain a more reliable picture of women from the Quran. You are just to approach the text as a living narrative who can disclose herself by her voice and silence words. In what follows, uh, like the style of the Quran's narrator, I try to explain our research process and some of its results in a concise manner. And in, in accordance with the Quran's narrator's style, I want to leave discovering the socio-political implications of this research for you. I won't talk about such implications, but I'm sure that you can hear my 
silent words. Uh, <laughs> okay. So this research is about rereading the Quran as a narrative and through its women's characters or the stories of women. But why narrative and why women stories of women? By the term narrative, we mean the very well-known and inclusive definition as a discourse stating facts or events linked together in a temporal sequence and with causal link. When regarding a text as a narrative, we deprive it of all its social context and historical roots. Doing so, it is not of importance where and when the text has been produced. In such an approach, we put the divine nature of the text as a sacred revelation or vah in Islam in parentheses. We don't take into account the ideological beliefs and theological doctrines about the text. In all, we try to neglect the historical, political, and ideological literature that has been developed around the text as far as possible. In a narratological approach, we try to close our eyes to the different paratexts so we can get closer to the text per se. Thus, the text is valuable in itself, not as a sacred revelation, nor as a historical document. This approach provides us the possibility to let the text speak for herself. A narratologist listens to the text to discover all the implicit and silenced meanings of the text throughout the textual signs and indications within the text, nor beyond ne neither paratext, neither hypertext. In addition to this, encountering the text um, as a flowing narration of life, one, one can reconstruct a completely <coughs> different discourse of interpretation. Getting out of the cliches made by the authorities, one can see the Quranic text as a narrative word which is constantly in process. This word portrays people in their real lives with all kinds of emotions, ambitions, right and wrong decisions and reactions. People of, of the text are not fixed models or, spe or specific archetypes of some <coughs> kinds of people. They are living beyond the words which describe them. They experience sufferings, joys, hopes, angers, anxieties, fear, and trembling. These people are not the hysterical figures who are passed away, nor frozen in a far past. They live in and at the present tense. The reader of the text as such can't help herself going into this world and feeling empathy with those people. Many textual indicators in the Quran invite the narrative to feel as she is present at the scene, and in many cases she feels as she can be active in reconstructing the events. And finally, from a narratological point of view, one can ask about the narrator of the text instead of the historical author. When a narratologist asks who is the narrator, she is searching to find a textual identity, from whose point of view and by whose voice the text is narrating. This identity is not the same as the embodied historical author. 
and the identity of such a narrator has been entirely ignored in the abundance of Quranic studies literature. A narrative-based approach to the Quran conducts a procedure of interpreting the text that encourages reader to unmask the narrator and to contribute in the process of meaning reconstruction. We can call such process of encountering the text as hermeneutics of unveiling. Now, our second element was the stories of women. Why did we choose stories of women for discovering a more authentic picture of women in the Quran? We can study Quranic indications about women and femininity in three textual levels, in language, religious prescriptions for women, and stories. Among these three levels, we had good reasons to choose stories for as our source. Um, the first reason is that uh, stories or fictions have clearly the narrative structure which fits completely our narratological approach, but we had more reasons. <coughs> a, most um, a very important reason is that positive female characters in the text can be regarded as the best models of good women from narrator's point of view. It means that the whole depiction of good women in their stories should be consistent with the collection of Quran's prescriptions for Muslim women. More importantly, when a narrator chooses the fiction or story genre, she is intentionally choosing to hide one or some of her purposes um, in the text and leaves the reader to discover a hidden meaning. In other words, creating the text in the form of fiction or story provides it with hidden levels of meaning and usually puts some points in the deeper levels of the text. This very nature of the story, in turn, invites the, the narrative to deal deeply with the narrative, to be interactive in making sense of meaning and to uncover the hidden points. So if we are setting up to discover a new picture of woman in the Islamic sources, a picture that has been invisible so far, the Quranic stories should be among our first candidates. For these reasons, we can expect that a narratological approach to the stories of women in the Quran will bring about new flourishing results, flourishing against powerful, resistant, male-centered clamors around the text. Now, let's cut to the chase and take a look at the stories of women in the Quran. As you see in these tables, there are 17 female figures in the Quranic stories. 13 female figures are represented as heroines or protagonists or supporting characters. And four ones, which are positive characters, are less than minor characters. They do not have any action or voice and just mentioned in the dialogues of other characters. To analyze the stories of these 17 female characters, firstly, we try to answer these questions. First, how are female characters developed and presented, represented in the stories? Second, what do the explicit, implicit, and silenced contents illustrate about gender? And third, can we find a way to the narrator's identity 
via these stories. Now, let's examine one of the shortest stories in the Quran in which a woman has a brief appearance. This is the story of Abraham and messengers of God. It is similar to a story, um, the story of Abraham and the three angels in the Bible, Genesis 18, but there are some important differences. It is narrated three times in the Quran. The differences between the three versions of this story are very crucial. The shortest version reads, and informed them about the guest of, guest of Abraham. When they entered to him and said, peace, he said, we are indeed afraid of you. They said, don't be afraid. Indeed, we give you good tidings of a wise son. He said, do you give me good tidings till old age has befallen me? What sort of good tiding is it? They said, we bring you good tiding in truth, so do not be despondent. It is a very short, wide, complete story. There is no indication to any woman character in the story. But this very story is narrated two other times in slightly different and more elaborated manners. Let's read them and compare the three versions. Certainly, our messengers came to Abraham with the good tidings. They said, peace, he said, peace. Presently, he brought for them a roasted calf. But when he saw their hands not reaching towards it, he was suspicious and felt a fear of them. They said, fear not, we have been sent to the people of Lot. His wife, standing by, laughed, so we gave her good tidings of the birth of Isaac and of Jacob after Isaac. She said, Wow to me, shall I give birth when I'm, I am an old woman and this husband of mine is an old man? It is indeed an odd thing. They said, Marvel you at the command of God, the grace of God and her blessings upon you, people of this house. Truly she is all laudable, all glorious. And the third version reads, Did you receive the story of Abraham's honored guest? When they entered into him, they said, Peace, he said, Peace. You are an unfamiliar folk. Then he reti retired to his family and brought a fat calf, then put it near them. He said, Will you not eat? Then he felt a fear of them. They said, Do not be afraid and gave him the good tidings of a wise son. Then his wife came forward, surprised, smote her face, and said, A barren old woman? They said, Thus has your Lord said, Truly she is the all-wise, the all-knowing. In this more, th this is a picture of this story from the Bible. In these more detailed versions, the plot, the moral theme, and setting seem to be the same as the previous version. But only a new character is added to the story. This new character is Abraham's wife, Sarah, as indicated in the Bible. She is described as an old woman who normally cannot be pregnant. Approximately at the middle of the story, she joins the events, and the act of marveling at Angel's prediction is ascribed to her. At first glance, it seems that her role in the story is simply to be a substitution for Abraham's marveling, and maybe because the good news for a prospecting son implies a woman to gestate it, 
so her role seems to be secondary or accessorial. In all, her presence is not essential to the progress of events. She only imitates the dialogues of the main male character. If you eliminate her, you can still have a complete story, the story of Abraham, like in the first version. Thus has been the standard reading of this Quranic story. Sarah is understood as an imitating Bidi at the endmost point of the story. Hence, in the history of this story, she has been depicted at the darkest margins of the readings of this story. If she is depicted at all, as you can see in this painting, can you find her? Yes. <laughs> now, let us, let, let's watch the fragments as a narrative and through the lenses of our three questions. How is Sarah characterized here? At the beginning of the story, or in the first act, she is behind a wall, in the interior part of the house, in the recess. She is helpful and hospitable, since Abraham goes to her location, and after a while, he comes back with a calf. Besides, we can infer that she has a lovely and close relationship with her husband. The repeat, uh, repeated word ahl, or family, in the second and third versions, and the plural pronouns and verbs in the first version used by Abraham for explaining his and his wife's fearing, connote an intimate relation between the couple. And at the second act, Sarah is standing by the door. The words standing and came forward um, show that she is she is taking care about her husband. Whereas uh, she is behind the door, but we can discover that she is worried for Abraham. And the word standing by shows some kind of anxiety and caring about someone. So she cares about for the others. But after she hears joyous news about a child, she can't help herself staying there. So in the last act, and at the climax of the story, she appears on the stage while being surprised, laughing, and hopeful. After her presence on the stage, all attentions turn to her. The divine messengers uh, in the third version and the interfering narrator in the second version directly speak to her. She directly makes a dialogue with the divine, with the angels. She then forms a simple argument. We all old and barren, so how can we have a child? Consider her kind of argumentation carefully. She doesn't make a traditional syllogism like if P, then Q, not Q, so not P. Her argument shows her practical kind of thinking. She does not argue in terms of a rigidly determined truth table. She argues in terms of the changing life. She doesn't say it is not possible never and ever that an old barren couple has a child. She rather asks a question, how is it possible? So her logic is not based on determinism and absolute certainty. In contrast, her logic is based on possibility and flexibility of real life. According to this logic, Instead of insisting on the truth of her propositions, she asks questions. And instead of remi remaining in a fixed position, she has hope. 
This way of thinking denotes a kind of wisdom different from rationality as such, which is based on thinking through deeply lived experiences and hopefulness and practical insights. In addition to this, analyzing Angel's speeches shows that Sarah is a faithful woman. She knows God through the names of Rab and Allah, and she is confident that God's promise goes through. At the end of the narrative, she is only listening to the angels. So her last action is listening faithfully to the divine words which, which say, God's grace and blessing upon you. These are the most important characteristics uh, of Sarah in this narrative. Now, let's put a step backward and watch the whole scene to discover the narrator's point of view. Where is the narrator standing? Analyzing the deictic words and phrases uh, in these three narratives shows that the narrator is standing at the center of Abraham's exterior hall or yard. You know, the verbs entered to him, came to Abraham, brought for them, and again entered to him show that the narrator is standing at the center of the hall. Um, at the same time, the narrator is a third person, omniscient, aware of Abraham's inner feelings, and reporting objectively what is happening on the stage. The second, in the second version, the V narrator is explicitly part of the story, declaring the angels are sent by us and developing the story as our intended plan and speaking directly to Sarah, says, uh, we promised her Isaac. The narrator introduces itself as the efficient cause of the events. Exactly unlike Sarah, the narrator is omniscient and knows everything for sure and with certainty. Not only certainty is part of his narrating style, the events in the story are also progressing according to a teleological causality, which is based on the pre-established plan of the narrator. So our narrator looks at the events from at least three points of view, from the above and outside the scene, from inside Abraham's hall, and from Abraham's mind. The narrator is a character within the narrative at the same time and is beyond the narrative world, while it also is standing at the deictic center. So it has access to a complex point of view. Another step backward. What is the point of this narrative? Why has the narrator narrated this story at all and why it narrated the story in this way? These questions are more difficult to answer. Can we find some te textual signs and indicators within the narrative itself to find an answer to these questions? To approach these questions, we analyze the structure of Quranic stories, looking for some kind of reason or logic according to which the narrator inserts certain stories in the text. We found that Almost all stories in the Quran are included in the text according to a simple logic. As you can see here, each chapter or surah in the Quran carries an underlying theme or message or idea. This idea is usually declared explicitly at the beginning or at the end of the chapter. Not all chapters or surah contain a story, 
But in chapters including one or more stories, the stories are often brought into the chapter in order to insist, empower, or explain that main idea or message. For example, in chapter 27, Surat An-Naml, um, the chapter designates uh, such, an such a structure. The main idea is that God has revealed a divine book, that is Quran, to Muhammad, which is like a miracle or endowment, while many people do not accept it. Then some stories of different prophets are told. All of these stories are about different miracles and endowment given to prophets and the denial of these divine gifts by unbelievers. This strategy of storytelling opens a historical window in front of the reader to see that similar lines of events have happened in the lives of other prophets. Influenced by these similarities, the audience is persuaded to accept the main idea of the chapter as true or as a strong possibility. Though very simplified, this is the main structure of most Quranic stories within each chapter. Now, return to our own story of Abraham and, and Sarah. This story, however, does not follow the dominant structure of the Quranic stories. The second and third versions of the story don't show any connection to the message of all the chapter. This story seems to be detached from the central text and remains only in the margins of the chapter. So we have a serious problem in finding the narrator's strategy or intention in bringing this story. Furthermore, this story doesn't follow a very important principle in Quranic narrative, the principle of brevity or brevitas. It is an inclusive rhetorical style in all the Quran's texts. The Quranic narrator eliminates whatever that can be put out of the text for the, ba for the sake of brevity. While, as you have seen, this story contravenes this important style by bringing Sarah to the story as an unnecessary character in the third and se second versions. So, what is going on here? Is the narrator reversing all its narrative principles and strategies in this story? Conforming to Chekhov, should we remove this irrelevant gun from the text? From a narratological point of view, we can definitely answer no. This is an intentional and conscious deviation. Examining, its narrative, examining this narrative with all its elaborated elements for Sarah uncovers a very important point about the narrator's intention. This story altogether is a plea, a kind of pretext to unveil a woman behind veils, to get her out of her recess and to bring her on the stage. The narrator wants to remind us of a woman who has been neglected in all the history, an old woman who is not even a mother without any special characteristic. She is not very beautiful, not powerful, a complete example of an ordinary woman, a simple housekeeper, one that has been invisible in all texts and contexts. Our narrator intentionally draws back the curtains of history to let us watch her story. The narrator proposedly desires its narrative include this character. 
So there is no need for any pretext to bring Sarah into the text. In contrast, all of this text is a pretext for her appearance in the text. In this way, our omniscient, omnipotent narrator, at the climax of the story, decides to put Sarah in the center of the mise-en-scene. Sarah is now the heroine of this narrative, the shining character. Nonetheless, almost all Muslim interpreters have ignored her or conceived her at the margins. The story of Sarah is one of the shortest stories of women in the Quran. Yet, as you saw, it has many connotations and implications. We analyzed all stories of women in the Quran by a similar methodology to see how women are present, represented and characterized in the Quranic stories and why they are represented so. The results brought about an entirely different picture of women in the text. I'll tell you some of the results concisely and in three parts. Characterization, implicit and silenced contents, and the narrator's identity. Um, in the study of characterization, we tried to draw out all qualities and properties of female characters in the stories. Though the stories are not so long, we inferred many characteristics. It is due to the fact that each woman in the stories is represented as a completely different and independent character. There are no fixed and repeated cliches of femininity. Here are the results of analyzing eight, these eight female characters. These are the female positive characters. Um, so the minor positive characters that do not have any dialogue or action are not included in this um, table. The most frequent uh, property, as you can see, is dialogue with God, then is spiritual potency, then caring for the others, then faithful to God, then wisdom, and you can see the rest. In total, to pile up and incorporate these many properties, you can imagine all these eight females, female characters as a unique woman, <coughs> which is an integrated character. Keep this woman in mind and we will elaborate her image. So, how to explain this table of properties to reach an understanding of the meaning of gender and woman in the Quran? Considering the frequency of these properties, you can group all the properties in three clusters. In the first cluster, you have the first two properties, that is, dialogue with God and spiritual potency, which form together about 32%, about one-third of all the properties. Then you have the most inclusive cl cluster formed by properties with frequencies between 6.5 to 2%. This cluster forms about 56%, approximately two-thirds of our imaginar imaginary integrated female character. These properties altogether construct a complex concept of what we decided to entitle as relational wisdom, which has nothing in common with the modern concept of rationality. Okay. Um, this 
Relational wisdom makes sense in its connection to the concepts of the others and interaction. The reasoning activities by our female characters are connected closely to the real life experiences. All of the women's arguments in the Quranic stories are affected by a kind of practical insight. The arguments denote a kind of probabilistic logic which takes the real changing life into account. Hope is an important element in their thinking model. Additionally, this wisdom is developed through a practical insight arising from life experience. Our women in the stories do not make their decisions in isolation. Their decisions are not abstracted from the real life and others' lives. They consider many actual and practical aspects in making decisions. Surviving the others' lives and values are decisive in their way of thinking. They usually reflect on future, future possibilities and results of any decision. Another significant element of this wisdom is empathy. Our women try to understand the other through empathy and taking the other's desires and benefits into account. Yet, they are courage, decision-making, and they set up acting to improve a situation. Besides, an inclusive emotion or passion underlies most of these procedures, that is, faith or believing in God's presence. Therefore, the second cluster designates a kind of wisdom which is an integration of theoretical, practical, and divine reason. If I want to speak in terms of philosophical terminology, this wisdom is somehow sim similar to the Aristotelian notion of phronesis, which contains intellectual and practical values and virtues together, in addition here to a divine insight. Um, the last and smallest cluster, which forms 12% of our integrated female character, contains different properties among them are the properties which are more familiar as female features, like housekeeping and beauty and seclusion as traditional female properties on one hand, and ruling and governing as some radical properties in the modern thought. You can see that in the Quranic depiction of women, gender cliches are very pallid. While spirituality and properties related to wisdom are constituting almost all the body of our imaginary woman, sex and gender cliches have less than 5% share. So our integrated image of the positive Quranic woman designates a faithful human being in constant dialogue with the divine or with the other people, while she is thinking and acting in, in terms of empathy, care, and hope. Such frequency of properties directs us to a very important point. The narrator's, strategy, the narrator's strategy in developing female figures is degendering the characters. Gender is not a constitutive category in developing Quranic characters. Faith and wisdom instead are the main categories. So we can infer that in the Quranic narrative world, gender is not a crucial not nor even a supplementary category. In developing female characters, our narrator's strategy is to put the gender cliches out of the text, then making female heroines on the basis of relational wisdom. 
Now we reach to the second level or the second question of our research, analyzing the explicit, implicit, and silence contents of the stories to see if there are any meaningful narrative indications in the story regarding gender and women. As you saw in Abraham and Angel's story, our narrator directed the story in a way that at the climax of the events, a veiled woman came out of the veils and became the heroine of the story. This is what we can call an implicit content which can be inferred from the whole story. We studied all women's stories from this point of view to discover the implicit and silenced content about gender and woman. Before explaining the results, I'd like to draw your attention to another very short story in the Quran. The story of Mary's mother. Her name in some Christian sources is Anne or Hannah, and she is a very respected figure in the Islamic sources. During all this story, she's, uh, she's speaking with God. This, all the story she's speaking with God. No, no other act. The story represents her as a pregnant mother sitting in a private place, praying and asking God that her child be a son. She tells God that she will dedicate her child to God. Unbelievably, the tone of the words and drawling manner of phrases in this fragment transmit her sense of solicitude and suffering. It seems that she has escaped here from people's offensive words. In the next act, after she gives birth to the child, she finds out that her child is a girl. She complains God for that. And suddenly, the narrator, who has been absent from the story as a third-person narrator, enters the narrative and vigorously states that male does not match for female. Then Anne, still speaking with God, names her daughter Maryam and prays for her and her offspring be secured from Satan. This time, God accepts this request. I apologize this fascinating story for this incomplete report. Due to the time limit, I can't consider many absorbing aspects of this story. However, I just mentioned three important points about some explicit and implicit contents of this narrative. The first point is that mother's solicitude and suffering situation in addition to her complaint about giving birth to a female, demonstrate a patriarchal setting behind the story. So, the narrative implicitly depicts a patriarchal and male-centered society as part of the narrative atmosphere. At the same time, the narrator implicitly condemns this society by narrating the mother in suffering and segregating from that society. The second point is that, in the first act, God of the story doesn't accept mother's request for giving birth to a son. Then, the narrator, not God, God of the story, at the climax of the story, interferes the narrative and explicitly announces its, its position about this situation, saying that son does not match for girl. Our narrator is clearly angry with the patriarchal society. The third point is that mother names her daughter Maryam. This is the only female proper name in the Quran. God accepts this naming and our narrator 
uses this name for Mary throughout the Quran. The narrator also puts the two requests of mother in contrast, demanding to give birth to a, to a male child and commending the female child from Satan. The first demand is not acceptable, while the second is accepted with a gracious acceptance. Making this contrast, our narrator again implicitly shows its anti-androcentric position. Every audience of this narrative we firmly claim that can figure out how the narrator has applied different strategies to condemn androcentrism and how it has declared its position toward sexism. Nonetheless, almost all readings of this story fail to get this obvious point. Almost all Muslim interpreters understood these verses conversely. They closed their eyes on all these explicit and implicit contents. Even for interpreting the obvious statement male does not match for female, in favor of their androcentric views, they did their best to distort the syntactic structure of the Arabic phrase and to conceal the obvious meaning of it. They didn't let the loud voice of the narrator be heard. They suppressed the voice of the narrator by developing clamors around the text. They covered the narrator under a hefty veil of patriarchal literature they produced around the text. In this way, they developed an anti-hermeneutic exegesis tradition which results in covering the main points of the text. In all the stories of these eight positive female figures, our narrator depicts a kind of androcentric setting behind the narrative and criticizes this view by different narration tools. In most cases, you can detect silence and implicit contents from parts of the story or all the story which challenge androcentrism and patriarchy. In sum, much of the implicit and silenced contents of the narratives have serious implications about gender settings. They are concealed in the stories to criticize and condemn patriarchal, androcentric, suppressive, exclusive, and self-centered views. Yes, you can ask why our narrator has concealed these critical points within the narratives. This is an important question which leads us to the third and last part of the research. I mean, the narrator. When you consider a text as a narrative, you will find the footprints of a narrator everywhere. All over the process of reading, this question comes to your mind. Who is the narrator? When you are discovering the plot, the causal relation, when studying the characterization, when reconstructing the atmosphere, when uncovering the moral, the implicit, and silence points, all over these activities, you are, in fact, interacting with the narrator, a live, active, and intelligent agent within the text who is telling you the story, who is making different strategies to proceed the events according to its own logic, and who is putting forward a specific system of values in the story world. The question of narrator's point of view and identity is an inseparable part of each and every narratological study. But without any doubt, <coughs> this is the most difficult part. 
We considered this question at the last part of our survey in the Quranic narratives. However, it calls for a long lecture in order to completely explain. We should discuss the differences between the author, the implied author, and the narrator. Then we are to examine the qualities of strange narrators and the textual contracts between the narrator, the historical reader, the implied reader, and the narrative. We suggested a consistent model for the Quran's narrator, which can be accounted for different and changing points of view in the text. I only mention that in this model, the narrator is not a male nor a female being, while the historical creator or author of the text was a man, that is the Prophet Muhammad, and though the Quranic God, as the source of the text, is supposed to be male, this narrator of the narrative cannot be regarded as male in any way. The Quran's narrator as a textual identity has been invisible so far in Islamic and Quranic studies. It is the source of all voices in the text who has disclosed women in its narrative while itself has been hidden behind the words and silences. The Quran's narrator, whoever it may be, is the director of a magnificent performance who brings women as heroines on the stage, giving every one of them a certain instrument to perform her own voice while all are singing towards the divine and the divine is murmuring with them so that you cannot recognize which is the voice of the divine and which is of the heroines, because all voices are the voice of the narrator. Thank you for listening to my voice. Yes, yes, Zara will take questions. Do you want to call on them or do you want me to call on them? Oh, well, you, you can sit down. Okay. I'll be see everybody. Great. Thank you very much. Zara will take questions. Barbara. I wanted to say thank you for the talk. It's always you all learn a lot from you. Thank you. Um, and I was really struck by the chart, where you broke down <coughs> the different parts of, um, well, the different qualities of the right? And then at the end, this dialogue with God is the most um, perfect category. You mentioned as you were talking about that chart that what you felt, among other things that it showed us, is a degendering of women. And I was really struck by that. And I wondered if you if I could ask you to say more. Because I wonder, is it a degendering or is it a regendering? Right? Because it's a spectrum of things on that chart, right? It moves from the really traditional, as you said, the cliches of femininity, housekeeper, yeah. et cetera. And then to the more, um, I think you said, like the spiritual experiences on the other. So in your view, are those stories showing us that these women should be thought of as somehow traditionally gendered or as gendering in a way that we kind of notice? Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you for your attention. I think that your, your phrase mm, fits more to the situation. Yeah, very exactly you, you pointed to this point. Um, yes, because many of these female characters are mothers and mothering is is uh, strictly a female activity so i think that yes you are right 
our narrator is not degendering, it is regendering and redefining uh, a new meaning for being women. Yes, I think that would be more correct. Thank you for your points. Thank you very much. Yes? Uh, thank you very much for this interesting uh, presentation. And first, I wanted to ask you, uh, on which basis do you consider God people and me? Because uh, when you say Huwa Allah, uh, Huwa, as I know, it's a linguistic mark, a mere linguistic mark. It's not the uh, qualification of God or the sex of God because God is an con uh, abstract concept and it is neither male nor female. And uh, this, uh, if we read this uh, uh, linguistic mark, we read it culturally, definitely. Culturally, because it's uh, reveal, uh, revealed, the Quran was re revealed uh, in Arabic. And it, this is uh, the culture uh, in uh, Arabic, uh, in yes. Arabic culture, uh, uh, in the context, uh, context of revelation, um, put emphasis on males. That's why. Uh, this, uh, this is my first uh, question. My second question is about uh, um, asking uh, Quran uh, or uh, being interested in um, uh, the philosophy of Quran about women. I think it was very clear in Quran that uh, God was with women, with equality. No, no doubt about it. Because in that context of revelation, women, babies, female babies were embedded, embedded when, when they, they, they are born, they were born, they embedded them in Jahiliya. That's why he said, It's definitely with the equality. This, this verse shows that Quran is with women. question that is very clear in Quran, the equality, I mean. Third, I want to ask you about uh, the necessity, truly the necessity of um, having this objective, objective to um, uh, know uh, through those stories uh, a point of view of the narrator, God, uh, about the question of uh, women. Because those stories are put in Quran as they happened in the historical context. So, so it is, uh, uh, the text is reporting not uh, uh, the philosophy of God in, the, in these uh, stories, but it is reporting rather what happened. So if we, we notice in these, uh, those stories uh, an equality between uh, both sex, sexes, it's not from Quran, but it's from the historical context, because it was happened like this. It's not to show that God is uh, uh, against women or uh, in favor of men, and uh, you can uh, notice that if you uh, do the same things you have done uh, with the stories of men in Quran. If, if you uh, search in Quran the stories of men, what will uh, be the result? So I think, I do think, uh, I, uh, my PhD was on Quran, on conceptual 
structures in for n. So uh, I uh, uh, studied uh, the, pro the metaphorical projection of balance schema in for n. And I discovered a huge amount of words in for n that can show without doubt how much for n, the philosophy of for n, not stories or uh, the words are connected in a way that uh, says that the equality either between sexes or between uh, cultures or between uh, the equality is the basis of this text, the, the basis of God thought or uh, religion, uh, religious thought in Quran, the equality. So, is a huge amount of words that uh, definitely uh, proves that. Yes, thank you. Thank you for your interesting questions. Um, as to your first question about the linguistic, um, the, the linguistic problem of God, which is presented as a male, um, I want to explain you uh, a linguistic point. When in a gendered language like Arabic, God is represented as male in, in, in the level of language, it has a result uh, in the picture of God in, in all. God does not remain as a textual and ling linguistic identity in the text. This male identity uh, spreads out in all the picture of God. So the God, not only in Arabic, but in English and other gendered language, languages, is represented as a male character, as a male identity. You know, the linguistic gender can represent the word, if it is male-based, can represent the, the word as a male word. So when God in the Quran is uh, described in male adjectives, in male verbs, and male uh, nouns, then the God is imagined, has, gets a picture of a male. And you can see the results of this linguistic maleness, masculinity, in all the Islamic literature. In all Islamic literature, God is imagined as a male. And men are closer to God than women. You, you can say that in the Quran, the male and female words are in uh, and are in equality, are, are spread in the text in, in, a, in an equal manner. As um, one research has shown this point, I don't know your name, maybe this is your research, by a research by Dr. Rim Hassan has shown this point that the Quran has a, has a very equality, has shows an equal, uh, equality between male and female nouns and adjectives and, and verbs. But God is represented as a male, and because of this, God has been understood as a male being. So, uh, as Mary Daly says, uh, so far as God is male, male is divine. 
And th this has been the situation in this history of Islam. You, um, I'm sure that you are familiar with the Islamic literature and you know many, many um, different um, cases in the Islamic literature that depict women as um, very far from divinity and depict men as uh, divine people. Mm, I don't think that it's needed that I bring you some examples. There are many, many examples of this. The continuation of genitalia. I'm sorry. Totally <laughs> um, related to the text. The yeah. I think that the content of the text doesn't show, some, doesn't show that God is a male. But there is no, no way. When a language is a gendered language, the, who, who is using this language, who is ap applying this language, has no way other than putting God as a male or as a female. Um, there is no other way. And in other gendered languages, this is the case. Also, uh, and because of this, there there are some many linguistic studies to show that uh, um, you can find a third gender in the Arabic language, male, female, and the third gender that is not male or female or is both male or female. But these studies are still in process, and we cannot resist uh, on the results. But I can introduce you some of them. They are very interesting. Um, and about your second point about the equality in the Quran, uh, I definitely agree with you. <laughs> uh, and I'm very interested in reading your research, of course. Uh, but about the point you said about the historical, f um, the historical figures in the Quran, um, this research is exactly, uh, seeks exactly another point of view, a narratological point of view, which doesn't accept that these figures are historical figures. Conversely, we want to uh, regard these figures as textual figures, as they are introduced in a narrative. Not, we are not seeking for the histories, for what's happened in the history for them. We just want to see what the text is saying about them. So, so I think that this question is not applicable to this research. Can you Yes, of course. Uh, I'm Afa Mugun, 
first dog fellow at CMS. Very good to see you. Thank you. I'm doing a research uh, related uh, to uh, Quran and Bible uh, because I did it uh, for Quran in my PhD and now it's three uh, of the text, uh, Old Testament, New Testament and Quran. Thank you. Thank you Other questions? No question. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.